I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Chris Pope, songwriter, musician, and one of the founding members of The Chords. We take a journey through that band's formation at the tail end of 1978, hear how Chris got the job in the band, and how they were soon into live gigs and studio recordings. By the end of March 1979, the band are playing to pack crowds and Paul Weller is in the audience, which not only helps the band secure more gigs, but an important support slot to the jam. With the Mod Revival in full swing, what follows are two John Peel sessions, a few singles, Top of the Pops and an album, So Far Away. So we'll talk about all of that and even another time where they shared the stage with the jam, the Loch Lomond Festival in June 1980. And you're going to want to hear about that one. Paul Weller was a big supporter of the band and Chris in the press, once calling him the best songwriter of his generation. And the great thing is he's still at it right now. We're going to talk about new material as well. Let's get into it. Chris Pope, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. As it's the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, I want to know, first of all, when it was that you first discovered the music of the jam. I was thinking about this. It was in a playground when I was 15 years old, and uh, maybe 14, 15, I can't remember. And a guy came up to me, we'd all been like big music fans, you know, for the last three or four years before that, and showed me a copy of In the City. And I went, oh, that looks interesting. Because uh, I, was, I was a massive, massive Who fan, and I thought, wow, this, this guy's uh, bringing it through from the 60s through to now and then I basically stole it off him and never gave it back the copy of the album and uh, <laughs> that's where I started basically so you mentioned that this love of music predates that and yeah. you mentioned The Who you'd seen The Who already at like age 13 hadn't you? 12 and a half 13 I saw The Who five times with Keith Moon uh, with the full original lineup. so older brother and sister so they like record collections hanging around the place and my dad was into music as well so it was a, it was always around the house uh, and I don't know The Who seemed to sort of 
connect with me much more than any other band and still do. And obviously with the Quadrophenia thing, came out 73 and I'd seen them in 74. Charlton Football Ground and uh, that kind of blew my mind. The Charlton thing's come up recently quite a few times on the podcast, actually. That was obviously a key significant moment in that band's history, right? I think I mean, it might have been because there was a new generation of people coming through. The, the original Who fans were like, would have been 10 years older then. And then they're connecting with people because of Quadrophenia or what they came out the year before. Like a new fan base. And it wasn't just The Who. So, I mean, you'd seen and loved bands like Led Zepp, The Stones, The Faces, yeah. Bowie. But then punk happens. And what you're what then, what, 15, I guess? Just watch Summit Goes on a um, Sunday evening. And I remember seeing the pistols on it and thinking, this is a bit different. Uh, it was very important. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of been into the Eddie and the Hot Rods and the Dr. Feelgoods around 75, 76. I've kind of that R&B stuff, sort of Canby Island sound. I do remember when punk came along. I mean, I didn't dismiss all the stuff I was into as well. A lot of people did think it was like Ground Zeroes or whatever. <laughs> I won't say it, but I mean, it was kind of, I'd still be going to see bands like Zeppelin and, you know, like who, as I mentioned, but punk, obviously being 14, 15, it was like perfect timing for a young teenager like moi. You're going to gigs already at that age then. So it's not, this is not just consuming the vinyl, not stealing that record off your mate in the playground. This is <laughs> the live experience no, is a key thing. I, I feel lucky enough living in, in London. Uh, and them days, you, you get a lot of gigs, those living in Catford, you'd have a lot of gigs at the Lewisham Odeon and places like that. So you'd, you'd go down there, I'm going to try endless bands down there, and when you, you sort of blag into the marquee saying you're your AC, you put a deep accent on when you're 14, 15, and them days, I don't think really, people really cares as much as like nowadays the strict terms and conditions of, of life apply them days. And did you see the jam live before you got to support them? I went to see them at the Hamlet Club in 77. I'm pretty sure they filmed that, so I'm probably up the front jumping around one day. <laughs> there'll, be a, there'll be a little montage of it. And I'd seen them, it was another very important gig, I think, that's what you talked about the chart and was the Cannon Palace is called the Coco now or something, I don't know what it's called, but it was... um. 1978, it was when All Moncons came out and they were doing a Christmas show there. And that's the first time, I mean, I was about 1500, 2000. You knew there was going to be a mob revival, a mob movement, because there was, it was just a jam packed, jam packed with people in parkers and suits. And that's when I kind of like, we've been doing the course for about a year then. Uh, you knew there was something going to happen. The ridiculous thing is today on the day of recording this podcast is 45 years since that album All Mod Cons was released. Yes, um, I was only four. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually working in Boots the Chemist uh, part-time, obviously, I was still at school, and I do remember actually going over the road. Uh, I saw a review of the, In the Enemy, but I think it was Charles Sean Murray's. Uh, and I went straight over the road and bought it so the day it came out, yeah. So let's talk about you getting into music then. Was that always a passion? Were you always playing? Uh, no, I was always got music around uh, when I was growing up. So I think my brother bought a guitar when he was three or four years older than me and he didn't want to know about it. It was an old cheap Shaftesbury guitar which ended up playing on the first chords 50 or 60 gigs. And I just picked it up when I was 12 or 13 and never had any uh, uh, tuition on it. I just learned as I went along with it. So really from there on in. Let's talk about the start of the chords then. So the band formed 1978. You answer an advert in the NME. That's right. It was January 78. I think it was called Career Opportunities. And I just got on the bus, went down to Deptford, freezing cold January night, and met Billy and Martin, who were cousins, outside Billy's flats, went up there, blagged the audition or whatever it was. It wasn't really the cause then, played a few Who and Beatles songs, and we just started rehearsing. You know, when you're 16, 17, you got a lot of energy. And I prefer to put my energy into a Saturday night uh, rehearsing with a band as opposed to going out and trying to get 
I'm not trying to get laid or get pissed, but it is the most teenagers want to do at that age. So it's a choice if you're making it. I guess the importance of a band is not just the sound that you're creating together, but also that chemistry. And in those early days, that really worked between the you as a band then. Yeah, it's, it's, it was something totally new. I mean, I got, got on with Billy very well. He was two, a couple, two years, three years older than me. And we'd go out around Deptford and go out to pubs and then ask if they, the band wanted to play. And that's what we brought as close as, as, as people as well. And, you know, it was all just new. We didn't know what was going to get in front of us. Uh, quite exciting times, really, you know. You'll go straight into almost gigging immediately, right? So you're, you're straight out doing, doing live dates. I think we were an original drummer. Then we had a guy called Paul Halpern who joined us. He was a schoolmate of mine. who went on to become the road manager for the chords. Uh, I think mid-78, we were doing basically the local pubs in Deptford. Anyone would have us own little PA, so we just set that up. We were doing majority 100% covers at the time. Beatles, Who, Jam, Clash, any damn, any, anyone would have us. Really, I got B-sides with King stuff. It was just trying it out, you know. It was quite enjoyable. You're pretty free and easy them days, you know. One of those early gigs I read was the Waterloo Action Centre. <laughs> Tell me about this. The power went off, right? More than the power went off. It all went off. I vaguely remember it was a Rock Against Racism gig, and there was a few racists there. They put it that way. So they, <laughs> they, they, all, they got the wrong idea. They got the wrong idea. We, we, uh, I think it all kicked off, and uh, we were fighting against them as much as uh, we could. So I, I do remember that. Whether the power went off and off, I can't remember that one, though. No. Oh, I read that it turned out to be like a candle lit gig. All right. Okay. Uh, yes, possibly. Sounds a bit hippie for us, but um, it hardly worked out. I don't know. Really early on, Paul Weller comes to one of your gigs then. This is the Wellington in Waterloo, I think. Yeah, we started writing our own stuff. We started writing stuff in late September 78. So we had about five or six new tracks in the set as well as covers. We'd done a gig in Deptford and it was the first gig we ever did was Gary Bushell came down from Sounds and did a review of it, which kind of helped us. So we used to rehearse in Alaska Studio, which was around the back of the pub in Waterloo. We used to go in for a drink after one night, after rehearsals, and ask the rubber tower manager, down on his lap, where a bank could play, he sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, how much do you want? We said, we do it for nothing. And his eyes lit up. <laughs> and, and so we put plopped our PA down, thinking like there'll be like 50 people. And lo and behold, the first ever gig we did, is like 300 mods packed into the place. So the manager gave us a crate of beer and some sandwiches. Uh, and about a week later, we booked in a residency there, and Paul turned up. I remember he came up to me and saying, you were really good. I thought, I think it was my best gig. I think he said, I want you to play with us. And I think about three or four weeks later, I don't want to jump into so much, we signed the Jimmy Percy's label, which was a subsidiary on Polydor, and we were rehearsing in the studio, and then he just came up to Billy and said, do you want to support us at the Rainbow? And we said, mm, maybe, yeah, of course, we'll play, yeah. So this would have been, what, like your fifth, sixth gig or something like that? Yeah, you're, you're suddenly supporting eight, a jam. <laughs> yeah, eighth or ninth gig, it was ridiculous. It happened so quick. Brett had joined the band in January, the first gig in March, and I think we were playing in the Rainbow six weeks late, and, 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 and a record deal. Hard life, isn't it? <laughs> Isn't that mental? Also, at this point, the jam are really big because we've had what Tube Station. I think the Strange Town was came out sort of tour we were doing with them. Top ten band, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, they hadn't hit the, the number one sort of thing, but they, they had enough people at the gigs to make to know yeah. that they were popular. And you mentioned the mod side of things. Was that your bag then? And if so, what did that mean to you? Going back, I mean, I kind of been obsessed with Quadrophenia as uh, I should say at the booklet, and lo and behold, I ended up working literally hundred yards from where. Uh, 
Ramport Studio was for 10 years, didn't realise it. So the whole month thing was a bit weird with us. I mean, Billy was at the scooter and, and the, the uh, Parker and Brett was in the image, I think, a bit more than possibly me. I just loved the, the music of the period, you know, the Who and the Kinks and the Small Faces. That was always my bag with it. And I could never dress like a punk, Mohicans and leather jackets. So it was just, I don't know, jeans and Fred Perry's and whatever I was going to wear anyway. So regardless of whether being modern or not, Mods loved us, which was nice and made an audience. So what's not to like, really? So for you, it wasn't in the same way as it is for Weller, where he talks about it being like a religion. No, no, I mean, not for me. I mean, I I, I don't wear clothes that well anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us wear clothes that well, yeah. as well as Paul, you know. Uh, no, so if I put a paper stock shirt and I'm probably think. No, maybe I should wear just a black T-shirt. So that's my kind of answer to that one. <laughs> now, we'll come back to the Jam gig. The other big supporter, you mentioned Gary Bushell. He's come up quite a few times on the podcast, and, and we have chatted yeah. about him coming on. But he said, I'm not sure how much I can actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a big supporter. But the other big supporter was John Peel, who played such yes, a key part yes. of that time, right? Because so much of radio then and now was about the mainstream, but John Peel was such a huge, big influencer and supporter, and particularly for your band as well, right? Because you, you get to do a couple of sessions really early on with him. Well, what happened, we had time with the Jimmy Percy label, and there was, um, I don't go into too much about it, there was an altercation when we were on Saudi Undertones and a couple of sex pictures came down, and the rest is history, and we ended up not big on Jimmy Percy's record label. <laughs> right. <laughs> ho, ho. In between that, I think May to July, we did a gig, because you could them days, all over London and elsewhere, Cambridge, anywhere they have us. And John Waters, who was um, John Peel's producer, came to see us at the Marquee and liked us, and he said, you know, to John, I think you should put this on the session. So he went into a made of our studios, not thinking anything of it, and put down four tracks. And he played it four times in a, in a month, and he loved it. And that gained us a lot of interest in record labels, so it kind of saved our bacon, really. Peely wasn't daytime radio, it was tucked away a little, that show, but it was such a huge show for young people in terms of music discovery. Three channels on the TV at the time, and there wasn't football on like they have Sky now, there was no Xbox, there was no this, no that. So I between 8 and 10 or 8 and 12 midweek, I go in my bedroom and listen to the radio. You know, and that's what people did, I guess, I mean, obviously, because it was very um, influential, you know. But also the amount of material he was getting through, you know, those sessions, because I was looking at the list of the amount of people who did sessions with Peel, but all kinds of music. His tastes, he wasn't one particular genre. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't just a lover of the mod revival scene, let's no, say, no, or, no. or punk. Or, I mean, he was playing all the all-new sound stuff, the dub syndicates, all that stuff as well. White stripes were broken through Peel. It was incredible. His taste in music was just amazing. He was no musical snob. He was everything about him. He liked it. It was genuinely, he'd play it and he didn't care if it was a, whatever shirt he wore or whatever, whatever instrument you played. It was, uh, if he liked it, he'd play it. And I think that's lessons to be learned with a lot of people, you know, in the music business. Like he just showed that anything can happen if, you know, people make their own music, honestly, you know. Late 70s, early 80s, I used to listen to Dr. John P. You get the opairs, you get the specials, you'd get, like you say, dub stuff, you'd get uh, folk music, which he went back to the early 70s with. And yeah, you go, well, I, thought, I like that. I'll go and look at a band like Pentangle, which I'd never heard of before, and it opens up to anything. It's fantastic. Now, you mentioned this point then, so you're getting really tight as a band. You're gigging a few nights a week because you can. Let's talk about the jam gig. What are your memories of it? So this is the rainbow. Yeah, I remember Jimmy Percy shouting this, so he didn't jump around enough. I remember we borrowed some of the Who's guitars. I don't know how that happens. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they had some guitars down at the stadium or something, anyway, through Polydor. So I'm, thinking, I'm playing Pete Towns and Les Paul going, I bet I'll blow this one up. A crowd were quite receptive. We were on quite early. And when you play a big gig like that, it's your first ever gig, you're 
Basically, shit yourself, I think is the word, the polite way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, because we took the nest they were scared of Woodstock. Well, I felt the same way at the Rainbow, so there. <laughs> yeah, I remember we were playing it. I do remember um, me and Paul, the aforementioned ex-drummer road manager now, we went into the jam's dressing room, and John Wallace said, if you can stay in if you behave. And uh, I think we got drunk, so whether we behaved or not, I don't remember. And that's my lasting memory of playing with the jam of the rainbow. <laughs> well, there's another occasion we'll touch on in a second. I guess the thing for you as well, it must have felt like a bit like a roller coaster you're on where this thing's just hurtling at speed because you're signed and then you're not signed, but then you're signed to Polydor. And then top of the pops, you're get, let's talk about the first few singles. We've got Maybe Tomorrow, which is single of the week in Sounds, NME. There's a Kid Jensen radio show where he, he talks yeah. about it as well. And we're suddenly top 40 and we're top of the pops. I mean, this is yeah. nuts, right? Yeah, I mean, literally, uh, I, it was every, you know, every kid's dream, isn't it? So it did happen very, very fast. You can look back at it and go... Oh, if we'd done this, oh, we would done that. But you don't really think at the time, you shouldn't at the time, you should go with the flow. So it was so exciting. I remember waking up, we were in Preston and we'd done a gig at the, like the Polytechnic and girls were motorhead were playing at the um, town hall and we'd up drinking with them all night in the bar and waking up at nine in the morning being told you're on top of the pops. I mean, life can't get any, any better, can it? What are your memories of that experience? Can you remember who you on the bill with? Well, especially with number one, we've heard too much too young. I do remember very well because ACDC were on it doing Touch Too Much and Bon Scott and Malcolm Young came up to us in the bath at Top of the Pops and said straight mate you're the best band on the show and that's my bad Australian accent as my wife would testify she's Australian they were really really friendly and it was nice to, you know because I was a, I kind of liked ACDC in this kind of funny way because they were a very honest rock and roll band which you didn't really have in heavy metal them days it got, it got a bit flowery that would be good. And unfortunately, about five days later, Bon Scott wasn't with us anymore. Of course, right, yeah, yeah. That was the last TV appearance I think he did. These days, if you were signed to a major label like Polydor and you were mm. releasing music, you'd have all the media training, you'd go through all that. Yeah, yeah, you, how to perform on TV, because that's completely different to how you perform at the Rainbow or anywhere else, right? right. You wouldn't have had any of that stuff, no? No, we wouldn't have listened to anyone anyway. We never did. Prices or minuses of the cause, we just did what we wanted to do and made it up as we went along. And um, you know, all that kind of choreography and X-Factory stuff that's come in over the years, just, oh, come on, you know, it's, it's not real, is it? The mod revival at this point is in full swing. And you mentioned, I guess, trying to distance yourself from that. But at the same time, it's nice having those fans loving the band and connecting with you in that way. I don't think it was the problem of us was the, the mods. Obviously it wasn't and they, they were following us. The attitude at the time was from the press was the main thing. They were like, oh, you're a revivalist band. You know, you, you're just playing stuff that's been from the past. And well, it was no different to what the jam was doing in, in a positive way. And ironically, 12 years later, Blurns and Oasis dug into the 60s like we were doing and suddenly they, they were like, wow, this is great. You know, this is, this is really hip. So it was more like the attitude of like people saying, we well, are from the past and we weren't because the songs we were writing were about the present. It wasn't really distancing ourselves from anyone. It was just trying to be ourselves, you know? I guess it's also, we're always building on the past, right? It's inevitable. That's, we, we can't do anything else. We never, there's never a fresh start on anything, right? So that's, that's always going to be the case, isn't it? The thing with the enemy or sounds, maybe enemy more at the time, they had this thing about, New rock, you know, the alternative thing of the, uh, the Bunny Man, Joy Division, U2s and stuff like that, which I liked anyway. So we'll try and incorporate that. And if you listen to the, the later chords, singles, especially the stuff we did after that, 
you're influenced by anything. You can be influenced, like you were talking about, classical music. You know, you listen to blues music from the 30s and 40s, rock and roll from the 50s. Music is like a cake. You put it all together and see what, you know, if it comes out edible. Gig 100 for you is Loch Lomond. Oh, right, is it 100? Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. This was your first Scottish gig as well, I should say. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, the course UK are playing up there in, no, in Glasgow in November. It sold out. You, we had a massive following still have in Glasgow or in Scotland, totally. And I do remember whoever put the bill on had a sense of humour because, Dan, in 1980, when you put two mob bands, a punk band and a skinny band on in a field with people drinking lots of lager, you're going <laughs> to get a bit of trouble, geezer. So this was Bad Manners, yeah. the tourists, Stiff Little Stiff Fingers, fingers yeah. you, the jam. And, yeah. They, they tell me there was, like, you know, fights going on, but... I smashed my finger up and had to go into uh, uh, to the ambulance and get my things done, um, fingers done up. So, and it rained. So you can imagine it was like, I don't know, it's, it's something out of a brave art. <laughs> <laughs> it just looked, and then people were like lighting fires and stuff. It was like, yeah, this is great. Anyway, we got through it and we, we stayed in the same hotel as Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart. They were the tourists at the time. And they got up on stage and they were doing, I think, uh, some old 60s song. And I vaguely remember trying to get up on this little stage with them, but failing miserably. But so we had a bloody good time. Did you have any connection with the jam at that festival that you can remember? No, they were on quite late, obviously going on last. I, I think Polydor had some sort of like tent there, you know, as you would do backstage. But as usual with the cause, we probably stayed away from it and uh, end up drinking in the crowd. Yeah, you you're in the Braveheart field, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Me and Mel Gibson. <laughs> in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, I read this was quite a fun fact that I came up in research. So 1981, you start the year demoing songs for a second album. There's this football match against The Clash. The course yeah, yeah. versus The Clash, right? We used to rehearse in Vanilla Studios, which is in Pimlico. And opposite the studio, they're, they're sort of like gated like, little basketball pitches they turn into a football pitch. And The Clash were rehearsing in the other room. And they couldn't have rehearsed that much because they spent the whole time playing football. So we were like, yeah, we can play you. We'll play you. And so behold, the, gig, the football match was at Hyde Park. But I was ensconced in Wessex Studios where London Calling was made and never on the bollocks doing overdubs for the last single turn away again so I never got to play but the calls beat the, uh, the clash at football so that, that goes down in history doesn't it 5-4 <laughs> I reckon I was super sub apparently but I never made it <laughs> As, as quickly as it began, this thing implodes on itself and yeah. comes to an end, September 1981, with a yeah. meeting at your gaff, at your house, yeah? Well, apparently so. I, don't I, I kind of, when Billy left, 
I mean, I kind of want it out anyway. I don't know why the record company thing. I can't be miserable about it and go on about it. But they weren't really working for us, and we were. It wasn't really working for us as a band. Uh, Kip Joy, and he was good. What he did, and we. I think the two things we made was different, and they sounded different. And uh, I just think that the music. Well, people so much around at the time there was rockabilly, the romantic said come along by then as well. And people just saw us as not as a bit old hat, even <laughs> been around 18 months, so things moved fast at the time. You just go, Well, we've done what we can do, and if people don't like it, it's time to move on, really. You know, it's that thing as well. Of um, I guess there was so much music around at that time, and so many bands that the labels are supporting that where do they hedge their bets? What are they going to go for next, and, and possibly trying to follow the next trend as it kicks in, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can analyse everything and think, why and why not? And in the end, you realise that it's got nothing to do with the song. It's got to do with everything that goes around it. And uh, that's when, to me, it was like, I think I need to get away from this, you know? While you're gigging three nights a week, it's difficult to go and see other people and see other bands gigging and stuff. But yeah. did you have other experiences of seeing the jam? Did you remain a fan? Were you buying the records when they came out still? Yeah, well, I didn't have to buy the records. I was on Polydor then. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> To go and sell them? No, I'm joking. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, car boot. <laughs> Over market, very good Friday night. All my cons and setting stones are, are to me the jam at their immaculate best. They, they're kind of like brother and sister albums to me. I've done a lot of acoustic shows with um, Russell and Bruce, that's from the jam, and that's when they, they bring their stuff down to the level where it's a song, it's a song. And I've really enjoyed really playing with them and listening to their stuff there. So I've been experienced with that. I saw the jam, I've gone, I've met 20, 30 times, probably over, over the period of time. I was, what was it, 78, 77 through 82, you know. It's like the Clash, they were out and about and playing, and that was important to people because there was no YouTube or, you know, MCV or, you know, whatever you, you want nowadays. This isn't, you know, I'm not knocking it. Everything's different. But if you want to go and see a band them days, you go and see them. Simple as that. I guess there was also the influence of Paul as a songwriter for you as well, because you, like he now particularly, have that knack of, that wonderful knack of painting pictures with your songs. And particularly about those kind of those mundane, everyday moments, everyday life, that, that kind of those routines that we all go through. But you, you both have this beauty and charm with your writing. So was Paul an influence as a songwriter? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you trace Paul back with through Ray Davis and Pete Townsend, you get Paul Weller. But Paul Weller was original with what he did, especially like Tube Station. You're taking something of the past and you're making it in the present. So uh, obviously I come from, I guess, you know, I can't speak for Paul, the same roots. When I heard Tube Station, I went, that is a cut above the rest. You know, it was a fantastic song. So imagery about something that's that's basically happening on the streets of London. So it's fantastic. I mean, like I said, them two albums are good. I guess out of all the 77 generation of of musicians and songwriters, you have to put him up there. I mean, really, I mean, I'm a big fan of Diffident Tilbrook and Elvis Costello but, and Joe Strubb and Mick Jones, but, you know, he's up there. He's got to be at the top, number one probably, you know. So the course comes to an end. You start a new band almost immediately, Agent Orange. Yeah, <laughs> me and Brett decided that we needed to do something new. We had um, we did some demos. Mick Talbot played on them. I mean, a guy called Bob Smeaton who sang on it, and that was the original guys. And Grant Fleming was playing bass, who'd been on the mod scene big time. Got a guy called Kevin Peters joined us, who was in a band with Brett before that. So it's called like Entwined, you know how bands are. And we did that. We uh, got a deal with Virgin 10 about a year later, and they didn't like our name, Agent Orange, because they were going to try and Crime Breakers in America. So we changed the name of Sin Soldiers and got some management in, which is the worst thing we could have done. I mean, we did a lot of recording, and that kind of fell apart with the record label, and then the band fell apart, as it does. Two, three years out of my life, but it was good fun. <laughs> 
Well, I did read that this was like a massive deal with Virgin, and and I think your you you phrases you managed to then totally blow it. Yeah, it was at the time about under thousand pound, which is what's that nowadays? You know, double that, isn't it? About fifty million, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was enough to you know pay the rent and have a few beers. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, in time and honoured fashion that in my career, yes, it got blown, but I don't think it was particularly me. It was a four-way split on who we should manage us and what we should do. And it all got a bit muddled and a bit messy. Did anything see the light of day? Did any of that stuff get released? No, but what I've been doing over the last 10, maybe 20 years now, is I've done three solo albums or Pope albums and three Course UK albums. And on each album, there's always one or two tracks that was written from that period. So yes, yes and no. But they are, yeah, and I've got a compilation coming out next year with unreleased stuff. So yes, a lot of it will see the light of day. Now, the jam comes to an end 82, so a little later. What was your experience on that? Well, I went to the last gig, did a few nights at Wembley, and then, because I know Dennis Mundy very well, who's there, worked for Polydor, like a good friend. Uh, he was good, great to us as well. He invited us down to, me and Grant went down to the last gig at the Brighton Centre. Didn't go backstage or anything like that. I just saw it. It was, you know, when, you, when you, you're doing a last gig, it's kind of like, what are you going to expect from it? You know, it's just like, it's the end. I think it was the right decision. But looking at what Paul did with Mick Talbot and the Style Council, and he was heading that way with Beat Surrender and stuff like that, wasn't he, really? Whether they could have got back together, 20 years later and, and done something as a kind of a one-off tour, which will be nice for people. But it's, it's actually, why should I? And uh, I totally understand it and appreciate it. It's incredible, isn't it? Because it's such a short period of time that that band is in this capsule. I was talking to um, to Dylan White on the podcast really recently. A lot of people talked about this. Kind of, I know, Dylan. This moment in time, <laughs> yeah, this moment in time where this capsule is just there forever and it's never going to be tainted because there's nothing built on it. Whereas arguably the Who, because we've kept going, we kept going, we kept going, a completely different beast now to what it was back in those days, right? Yeah, I think with the Who because... They'd come on sort of a huge big rock band and change their sound. Very popular in America where the jam. People in England feel that, or Britain feel that they're theirs, you know? They're, they're their band and they stick with them because, like I said, we're from the jam ago, but they probably gig more than any other band in Britain. And if you can't gig without an audience, that means they're still popular. So it, it still resonates, doesn't it? What they do. They go out and do a whole album or they'll do the, the greatest hits, stuff like that. It's how many jam singers were there? 15, 20? Maybe more. You can say out of 20, 15 were just amazing, you know. So that's, you know, it's to me, it's music. I, I don't care what people wear. <laughs> I don't care what they look like. If I don't like the music, I don't give an F about them, but it's the music that counts. And that's what I think why they're still relevant. Yeah. But the fact those lyrics, and again, this is, this comes with the Star Council as well. You think all this time later, those lyrics still connect and mean pretty much exactly the same thing they meant then, which is a little depressing, right? Yes, I mean, it's like, uh, nothing new happens here. I don't want to quote myself, but I just did. <laughs> it, you've got to keep bashing at it. I mean, it's like, you know, if people don't point out what's right or what, you know, what's wrong in this world, then there's no point in actually being an artist, is it? So the mid-90s, mid-tail end of 90s, the chords comes back together. There was a reunion gig at the 100 Club. There was the Mods May Day at the Forum. We ended up new recordings. We're in Japan and Australia, right through to where we are now. So you mentioned a few solo albums. We've had a few Chords UK albums. And yeah. most recently... February last year, Big City Dreams, 14 brand new tracks. And I'm, I'm just going to read you some of the quotes from the reviews, folks, because you'll okay. love this, right? So Classic Rock said, you're like a South London Springsteen. 
which I think is a compliment. <laughs> uh, Viva La Rock, a riff-laden rock album of irresistible sing-along anthems and Louder Than War, an album full of passion and power and energy. And I think the key thing here for me as well is that this isn't a nostalgia trip. This isn't, we're just playing on what we've had then for the audience who likes us then. You still have this desire to create new and push forward and in the same way as dr robert when he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago yeah. paul weller you know you're constantly looking at the next thing you want to be creating new material right absolutely i i have no interest in going out and playing 12 old chord songs because the chords to me would have just been lucky or sensible where it was would have continued and when you continue you can't continue playing the same music you have to progress or do something different you add to it and you know subtract from it whatever you're doing so where i am now is where I, I would have always thought the calls would have been. That's why it's the calls UK. Um, I love writing new music, and that's the whole point. It's you know we go out, we played seven gigs in seven days last well up until yesterday, all the way from Bilbao down to Cordoza in Spain, and fifty percent was old and fifty percent was new. And people in Spain actually know the Big City Dreams out more than they know stuff like something's missing. So in the in the end, it's kind of like. It's great that people still like what I do, and that's why I do it. it I, I could not just sit down and play old songs. I couldn't just dial it in. Um, it's not for me at all. Yeah, but what a buzz that the the latest thing you're doing is still. And again, Doctor Robert and I had the similar conversation. Is is mm. is is finding an audience, finding a crowd. But as much as it's fulfilling, uh, ticking that box for you, creating new stuff, it's also connecting with people. Yeah, I mean, when you put the tracks up or Bandcamp or somewhere, and people buy it, you go. The whole reason why you go in the studio, spend you know a lot of money and a lot of time and love and effort for people to hear your new music, because that to me is what anyone should be doing. It's, it's like a football team don't play the same game, do they? They go and play the next game and if they lost one they go out and do another one you've got to get up and do something but if I write songs which are still hopefully relevant stuff honestly it's what I want to do and I've got a great band with me they've been with me for 10 years I couldn't be happier really you know how you write has that changed Paul was talks about the fact that back in the day obviously it was acoustic guitar him in his kitchen now yeah. um, is you know notes in his phone how much has that changed for you not a lot really it's still like the acoustic guitar on the iPhone because if, I found that if you've got an 8, 12, 14, 16 track at home, you spend all the time farting around with reverbs and drum machines or loops and stuff like that. And you've gone, oh, right. I haven't actually written a song here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a, a song to me is a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, whatever you know, arrangement is, and a melody and a lyric. And, and that is it. You can add to it. And obviously, you know, with drums and bass and harmonies. But in the end, you are sitting in the kitchen playing acoustic guitar because before that, it's a blank piece of paper. Isn't it? That's what it is, is that you go out and play it. The recording aspect has got easier now, though. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you can go in. I go, well, Kenny, our drum is great. I go in, we can put three tracks down. I'll comp the best bits I want out of them, and he'll just go home or go to sleep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like a, a bass player who lives in another country, I'll send him some stuff and he'll turn it in, and I'm the only one really in the studio doing it. And you get the guys come in and come out. It's and sometimes it's all of us there, sometimes it's no one. Whereas with the chords or any band from that period, you'd be doing 25 takes of one track. You know, by then you're so fucked off with it. You're like, and they go, well, track 16 was the one. You go, well, why don't you tell us that? You know, <laughs> and you're repeating yourself all the time because there wasn't technology there to do it. So, no, I find it a lot, not easier. It's just nicer nowadays, you know. Yeah. And I guess also that live experience is still a real key thing for you then. I mean, if you're doing seven gigs in seven nights, you know, that's not that's not something you hate the experience of, right? No, I, I, I can't. I mean, we always sit and moan about it. We sit in hotels and vans and long distances and crap food. You go, come on. 
If anyone's moaning about it, they shouldn't be in the business, shouldn't be playing rock and roll music because that's part and parcel of it. Totally, you know, getting up at six in the morning and going to get a ferry or where it is or an easy jet flight from God knows where. Five hours sleep, couple of beers, beach working, which you've got to go back to do on Monday. But, you know, I could never moan about it. It's the, it's the best buzz in the world. I should have asked you earlier when we were talking about that first Weller connection. So when somebody like Paul and John Peel we talked about give you that almost that stamp of endorsement, that stamp of imp- approval. I mean, you're a young kid. Actually, Paul at that time is pretty young as well, right? You're, you're not, not far off the age of each other. But that must mean a, a huge amount to, to a new artist, right? Well, in his quotes of me saying he's my favourite songwriter of, of that generation. And he, he says some really nice, kind things about it in one of his books. Just like, wow, I'm doing something right here. You know, and it gives you confidence. Of course it does. If someone who's a great songwriter, and he's a great songwriter, there's no you know, qualms about that. He's not good, he's great. And someone says, you're good or you're great, you go, well, fuck me. You know, <laughs> what more can you want from something? You know, and it, it, it does give you, it did give me confidence and still has. So cheers, mate. <laughs> nice. Have you had much connection with him since those days? Did you have any connections post those jam gigs? I've met him a few times. I've met him at the British Academy when he was doing the Paul Weller band before he had Steve Craddock and all them people in it. So met him then. I haven't seen him bump into him for years. But like I said, I must have seen Bruce about 200 times in the last five, six years. Russell was one of the very, very early podcasts. I think he was episode number three. Bruce has been on as well. They've just announced their final tour of Australia, which is lovely to see them going back to Australia and New Zealand, actually, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, I actually was meant to be playing them last September in Australia because I was out there. There was them, the Vapors, and I was going to do an acoustic set in Sydney because my wife's Australian, so I was out there. So unfortunately, he couldn't go. And that was a bit gutting, but I'm glad they're going out there because they've got a big audience. Yeah, like going back to them, it's, it's, um, I've done a lot, said a lot of acoustic gigs, which I prefer. When you play as a band with, from the jam, from the jam, they've got their own audience, you know, that I find it more receptive uh, when I, when people sit down and listen to your stuff. So that's where I'm aiming with from the jam, but I wish them all the best. Tell me about what's coming next then. So you mentioned about a compilation next year. Yeah. I'm slowly putting it together. I've realized I've got too many tracks to put on a vinyl record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not that didn't stop Billy do. Bragg with his, but yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah, I'm looking for that one. I've probably got enough 26, 30 songs where I split into two CDs and I might do another 10 acoustically. So maybe it like three CDs and whether it's going to work out for the vinyl might be a bit different for that but no I'm really enjoying doing it I've dug up stuff from like 20 years ago and 40 years ago and re-recorded some stuff with the Cause UK over the last five or six years and putting it all together it's been um, because of the thing with me Dan I'll go in the studio Saturday week and I'll go fuck this and I'll start doing loads of new songs <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Leather Space with me it'll be like oh, what? got enough to do a recording our 15 tracks to put a new album out but I'm not going to I've got six of my guns and put it out you've got to focus Chris you've got to focus man <laughs> yeah. that's it yeah otherwise you're Ed Sheeran <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, please no. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if we get that out next October, I guess it'll be around by then. Hopefully we'll do a UK tour. But we've got dates in Europe uh, all over next year as well. And we're looking to go back to America on the East Coast this time. So things are good. Well, this is really cool. I look, man, I love spending time with you here and your story and your connections. I have two final questions for you before you go, Chris. Of course, yes. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. We've not talked about Weller Solo, actually. Were you all really the Style Council? I, I think the Style Council, you put the best stuff together. It's fantastic. And it's different, isn't it? You know, like, you've got kind of like 
soulful bluesy stuff going on there. And he's some good, like I said, songs in there. Mick Talbot's a, a good geezer. He's a great player as well. He's come and played lots of our stuff. So no, I'm a big fan of Star Council stuff. The solo stuff he's done, he's done so many albums. It's hard to keep up, isn't it? You were there at the really early beginning then, the movement days. Yes, yeah. I mean, he, I think he's some guys from rock school play with him. It was a bit bizarre. Uh, it might have been Steve Merritt and just died because he's done a fantastic version of Tin Soldiers. So that's when I saw that. I've seen Weller solo stuff about five or six times. I think when he was 50, he did lots of dates at the British Academy. So I went to some of them. I like the 23 Songs album and I like Stanley Road. And you can pick a, you know, it's always a good track on each album, you know. Well, okay. Well, if you had to narrow you down to one song from any of those periods, which one would it be? Oh, I'll probably be Tube Station, but I'm going to go for Ghost. Ah. Just resonates, nice, beautiful melody, good lyric, you know, short, compact, everything you need in a, in a good pop song. It's so funny because at the beginning of this podcast series, that song came up loads and then Tube Station has been all the way through and we've, yeah, not, yeah. Heard about, we've not heard that song as this, the answer to this question for a little while. So it's nice to have that in the collection again. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Right, final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Chris, is to meet lovely people like yourself, to hear your connections, <laughs> to pull your story. But really, yeah. the reason I created the podcast was to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio <laughs> career. It's my one big okay. regret. <laughs> if this series ever comes to an end with Paul Weller, fingers crossed, what should I ask him? Um, oh, this is a hard one. I don't know. Why'd you still do it? That's a great question, though, isn't it? Because he doesn't have to, right? No, no. I mean, no, he doesn't. And uh, but what you you see where he plays, he'll go and play somewhere in a field or or you know not a field, but in a forest somewhere. So he's, there's always kind of like a new angle to what he's trying to do, you know. And even like the classical gigs, the Barbican, the yeah, 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 yeah. Type of thing. It's always looking mm. for new angles, isn't it? But why do you still do it? Love it. Mm. It's a good question. I should put it to you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> too late I'm too old to stop now <laughs> Chris thank you so much for your time I've loved it really nice spending time with you thanks Dave love it my thanks once again to Chris Pope for joining me on the podcast you can find all the details of recordings new and old in the show notes for this podcast loads of stuff about the Chords UK playlists videos and more on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, do head into my store and grab yourself some official podcast merchandise. You can even get yourself a virtual coffee as well. Doing exactly that over the past week. Thank you to Roger Clark. Hey to Phil Baker. Thank you to you for your generosity. Much appreciated. Hello to Russell Cox, who says, Hi Dan, still loving your work. Too many recent highlights to mention. Thank you, Russell. Hello to Georgia Moroso. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hey Grant, much appreciated. Hi also to Alex McLaughlin who says keep on keeping on mate much appreciated if you want to get involved paulwellerfanpodcast.com is the website you can send a message on social media you'll find us on x at wellerfanpod or on facebook instagram threads just search for paul weller planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.